from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey there, history fans. We're off today while I put the finishing touches on some brand new episodes. In the meantime, please enjoy these flashback shows from the TDI HC Vault. And be sure to meet me back here tomorrow to kick off a new year in history class. Hello again, it's Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast that truly believes no day is boring. The day was January 8, 1811. One of the largest slave revolts in U.S. history, known as the German Coast Uprising, began in the territory of Orleans, or present-day Louisiana. The German Coast was a region in Louisiana named after the large number of German immigrants who moved there beginning in the 18th century. The land acquired in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 included the territory of Orleans, which itself included much of the present-day state of Louisiana. I should note here that the Louisiana Purchase was not simply a purchase of land. The U.S. actually paid France for the imperial rights to land that was largely still owned and occupied by Native Americans. Anyway, sugarcane production was a major industry on the German coast. There was a large number of enslaved Africans and African Americans. And there were also many free people of color in Louisiana. At the time of the Louisiana Purchase, around one in six people in New Orleans was a free person of color. And free people of color in Louisiana were afforded a relatively high level of acceptance and prosperity, compared to the conditions free Black people lived under in other places in the U.S. At the same time, the Haitian Revolution, which ended in 1804 with Haitian independence from France, resulted in an influx of Haitian migrants. Fears of slave rebellion were already high among Louisiana's white population. 
But the arrival of more free people of color and the spread of revolutionary ideas via the French and Haitian revolutions heightened tension. And Maroons, or people who escaped slavery, still lived in communities around New Orleans and other places in Louisiana. As it turns out, some people were inspired enough by the Haitian Revolution to take action. An enslaved man named Charles Delon was a slave driver on a plantation owned by Manuel Andre near New Orleans in St. John the Baptist Parish. Around harvest time, when enslaved people were given more free time, he organized other people enslaved on the plantation and Maroons to plan an uprising. On January 8, 1811, the rebels wounded Andre and killed his son, Gilbert, Gathering muskets and ammunition at the plantation and putting on militia uniforms, the group marched downriver on River Road toward New Orleans. Along the way, they gathered people from other plantations. They planned to destroy sugarcane plantations, to free enslaved people in Louisiana, and to establish a Black state along the Mississippi River. The uprising was growing quickly, with somewhere between 200 and 500 people joining the cause, though the exact number is unclear. Many plantation owners fled the conflict, escaping to New Orleans. Others rounded up their own militia. The governor of the territory of Orleans, William C.C. Claiborne, sent troops and militia to suppress the uprising. Though the rebels fought against the local militias with clubs, knives, guns, and other weapons, and some were on horseback, the uprising was brutally quelled by January 10th. Many of the leaders of the uprising, including Delon, were captured and killed. Trials were soon held for people who had been captured, resulting in the execution of more enslaved people. The heads of some of the executed people were displayed on pikes. Other gruesome public displays of bodies were put up as an attempt to deter others from attempting an uprising. Nearly 100 enslaved people died in the uprising and subsequent executions. After the rebellion, free people of color in Louisiana faced more restrictions, like being required to observe curfews and have their racial status designated in public records. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions or comments, you can leave us a note at TDIHC Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Or you can go the old fashioned route and send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you tomorrow, same place. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that gives a quick look at something that happened a long time ago today. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're examining the day when members of Congress took a notable first step toward Black enfranchisement during the Reconstruction Era. The day was January 8, 1867. The U.S. Congress passed the District of Columbia Suffrage Bill, granting African-American men the right to vote for the first time in the nation's history. The bill's passage occurred about two months before the Reconstruction Acts enfranchised black men in the South, 
and three years before the 15th Amendment granted voting rights to all men, regardless of race. Meanwhile, black women, like all women in the United States, wouldn't gain the right to vote until 1920. The D.C. bill may have been the first law to grant suffrage to African-American men, but it still came with plenty of caveats. The exceptions were male residents under the age of 21, as well as anyone on welfare, anyone under someone else's guardianship, those who had been convicted of a major crime, and those who had voluntarily sheltered Confederate soldiers during the Civil War. At the time, the federal government had direct control over the elections and voting rights of the district. Citizens of D.C. were allowed to vote for a local legislature, called a council, but they didn't have any representation in Congress, and they weren't allowed to vote in presidential elections. All of that eventually changed, but even today, the district remains woefully underrepresented in Congress, and it's the only city budget in the country that still requires congressional approval. Federal oversight certainly has its downsides, but in 1867, it actually worked in the residents' favor for once. By the time the Civil War ended in 1865, the secession of southern states had cleared almost all of the Democrats out of Congress. This put Lincoln's Republican Party firmly in charge, and one of the first items on their agenda was to enfranchise black men wherever they could. This inevitably led them to focus on Washington, D.C., where Congress had the power to do away with racial qualifications for voting. But there was still one obstacle to overcome, and his name was President Andrew Johnson. He had assumed the presidency following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865, and unlike his predecessor, Johnson wasn't a Republican. He was a Unionist Democrat. That means he hadn't favored secession, but still sided with southern states on many other matters. Lincoln had chosen Johnson as his running mate in the 1864 election in order to promote the idea of a newly unified nation. However, that bipartisan gesture backfired when Johnson took over as president, setting the executive branch at odds with the Republican legislature. As president, Johnson put more importance on reconciling with the former Confederate states than he did on securing equal rights for citizens. As a result, when Congress first passed the D.C. Suffrage Bill in early January of 1867, President Johnson issued a veto to kill it. Still, in the end, that was just a futile gesture. Congress reconvened three days later, on January 8th, and voted to override Johnson's veto. The measure passed easily, with a vote of 29 to 10 in the Senate and 112 to 38 in the House. President Johnson would continue to fight the so-called radical Reconstructionists in Congress for the remainder of his presidency. His constant opposition and frequent vetoes eventually led to him becoming the first U.S. president ever to be impeached, though he wasn't convicted of a crime or removed from office. The first chance for black men in the District of Columbia to exercise their newfound right came in the summer of that same year, when the city's municipal elections were held. By the time of Election Day, black men accounted for a stunning 
of D.C. registered voters, despite being only 30% of the city's population. They had finally won the right to vote, and they intended to use it. The D.C. suffrage bill certainly had its limitations, but it was a solid win for the early civil rights movement, and a hard-fought one at that. This particular victory hinged on the actions of white leaders in the federal government, but it's important to remember that African Americans had been fighting for freedom and equal rights themselves since the earliest days of the country. During the Civil War, black leaders used the social upheaval of the moment to frame a strong political argument in favor of black male suffrage. For example, during an address in 1863, Frederick Douglass argued that extending the vote to formerly enslaved citizens would help preserve the Union's victory in the Civil War. He said that, if given the right to vote, African Americans would become the country's, quote, best protector against the traitors and the descendants of those traitors who will inherit the hate, the bitter revenge which shall crystallize all over the South and seek to circumvent the government that they could not throw off. You may need him to uphold in peace, as he is now upholding in war, the star-spangled banner. Douglas had hit upon a practical appeal for extending voting rights to black citizens. The party that did so would likely win their votes for some time to come. Republican members of Congress seemed to have gotten the memo and were swayed by the argument. By 1867, they were finally ready to get to work on the nationwide enfranchisement of African-American men, even if mainly for their own ends. The district law was a precursor to the Reconstruction Acts and constitutional amendments that would follow it. Today, it's remembered as a small but critical step on the long, winding road to equal rights. Over a century and a half later, that journey still has no end in sight, but with so much on the line, the important thing is that we just keep going. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. 
What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know, he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.